Well, good morning again. This morning, uh, we are going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 14, if you'd like to turn there, 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 14. Most Sundays, uh, when Charlie gets up here, it's about 35 after, but right now it's only about 20 after, so I've, is that, was that orchestrated by somebody? Or? Amen, amen, yes. Praise the Lord. So again, we're uh, in 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 14. Uh, before we get into the passage, I wanted to share something with you. I, uh, not too long ago, had an opportunity to uh, sit with someone who was in their, um, their final hours of life. And being as unacquainted as my life has been with death, I was unaware at that moment what to do or say, as you would probably be as well. And as I approached this man, I did so with some trepidation. And when I sat down, the first thing he asked me was what I thought eternity would be like for him. And unsure still of how to answer even that question in that critical hour, I began to explain to him what the scripture says about the afterlife, and I talked about the pearly gates and the streets of gold and the mansions and our intimacy with Christ. And after my lacking explanation of the grandeur of heaven, this man said, even for me? And I said, well, sure. Why would you think otherwise? He then went on to tell me about a life that was full of sin, full of pride and greed and excess. And as he spoke, I realized that I had not even asked him if he was a Christian up to that point. It was a foolish oversight on my part. So I proceeded to share the gospel with with him, which he affirmed that he knew. And as we prayed, the assurance of his eternal resting place came over him in a way that wasn't there before. No matter what his life had looked like before, he knew in those moments that he would be with Christ because of Jesus' promise. Within a few hours he passed, and as best as I could discern at that moment, I believe today he is with the Lord. Sin is a wicked mess, and it is in no way an excusable behavior other than through Jesus' death and resurrection. It is a choice to disregard the heart and plan of God in order to achieve what we think is gain, but is in fact loss. Like its propagator, the devil, sin is designed to kill, to steal, and destroy. However, in Christ we find this fact, no matter our choices, we can be forgiven, even this day, this morning, as we congregate together. Christ's death and resurrection assure us that on this side of eternity, we can always come to him, always seek his face, and always be forgiven for our sin, no matter what we've done or who we've been, no matter the atrocity of our choices, we can be forgiven. But as with the choice to sin, the choice to seek Christ's forgiveness rests with us, rests with you, and rests with me. We see this exemplified particularly in the story of David. This was a man who had incredibly close intimacy with God, King David. God had appointed him to lead Israel, and he would walk with David across the journey of leading this kingdom. David would rebuff God and God's provisions, however, and in the pursuit of his fleshly desire, he was an accomplice to murder and the seduction of another man's wife, a man that he would have killed, an atrocious act, certainly. 
But in, in and by God's good grace, David would have a choice to repent and a choice to come back to God. A decision either to turn into his evil that would lead to destruction or turn away from it and lead to life. It is a timeless choice for David and a choice for us today. God puts before us the choice to follow him in eternal salvation and lifelong lordship or turn into our sin and lead to destruction. Today as I speak, know God's word is presented to you. Today as we gather, know the Holy Spirit will be beckoning you, calling you unto repentance, unto salvation, unto lordship, or unto both. Today know that you too will have a choice and the question will rest with you. What choice will you make? Again, this morning we're in 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 14. And this is what it says in the English Standard. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord, and the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. The opening passage begins with God sending out of Nathan to pro- the prophet to begin an interaction with King David. And this isn't Nathan's first entrance into the palace. We'll see Nathan a few other times in a few other books. We can conclude by that that Nathan and David had an intimate relationship. Nathan was a counselor, not only a prophet, but here to advise David, to lead him, and to sometimes give him instruction, direction from God that wasn't always pleasant, as is the case of our story today. What David had done was morally atrocious. Even as you read, if you put yourself in one of the positions of this story, maybe David, maybe Nathan, maybe Uriah, you can recognize how this is a affront to God's plan and to respect and decency 
for the imprint of God on a person's life. He has sent Bathsheba's husband Uriah to the front line of a battle to die. And Uriah's wife was a woman who had caught his eye, who he wanted to be with sexually. And after Uriah's death, he would take her as his own, committing murder and adultery along the way. As the text ventures into Nathan's illustration about the lamb, the King James Version describes the lamb as one who would lay in the poor man's bosom and was unto him as a daughter. The New Living Translation gives more of an intimate perspective, saying he cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. It doesn't seem to be natural for a person and a lamb to have this kind of relationship, except for if this lamb was the man's most treasured possession. He treasured this lamb, and it certainly if it was taken from him, it would be a devastation because of the closeness they had. An interesting note, too, in this passage is there's a parallel between what Bathsheba's husband Uriah would comment to David in chapter 11 and what this verse says. In chapter 11, Uriah comes home from battle before he's sent to the front lines and says, shall I eat, drink, and lay with my wife? He desires to consider being with her, although we know he stays at the gate in our story. In 12.3, we see the lamb shared his food, drank from his cup, slept in his arms. It can be imagined that Nathan, having been given these words from God, was articulating a specific quote that David would remember. He would have a flashback in this moment and remember Uriah coming to him and saying, I want to be with my wife, but Uriah would sacrifice that and go to the city gates and wait. And so as Nathan brought this message of this parallel story about this lamb, no doubt David, in, in ensuing moments, would have recognized what he had done. Not quite yet, but soon. A direct quote that God had designed in Nathan's message to hit David's heart. Encountering verse 4, we see the rich man having an unexplained desire to keep all of his own sheep, rather than sacrifice one, for the sake of hospitality of his neighbor. The the, uh, English Standard Version uh, explains this in this way. New Revised Standard also explains it in this way, that this is a loathing from the rich man. His feelings towards killing his own lamb for the sake of kindness to his neighbor, he detested the idea of it. What mattered more to this man was maintaining his own wealth, his own possessions, his own goods, rather than sacrificing for the kindness of a neighbor. What follows is particularly wicked. The rich man's taking of the poor man's lamb, again, is an atrocity. This would speak clearly to the message that David was trying to relay, I mean, excuse me, Nathan was trying to relay to David, that the taking of Uriah's wife, too, was atrocious. It must be noted that the use of the poor man's lamb is prefaced with the word took. The rich man, without explanation, snatched the lamb from the poor man who loved this lamb. He took what was not his and treated it as if it were his own. The idea of taking, again, is seen elsewhere in Samuel, inclusive of chapter 11, verse 4 in 2 Samuel, to describe how David acquired Bathsheba. While she was responsible for her choices, David snatched her from Uriah's household, snatched her from this marriage, snatched her into his own house for his own desires. He was irresponsible. He was thoughtless. He was arrogant. 
This verse closes with very little closure at all. We don't find the poor man getting revenge. We don't find him calling upon the civic authorities. We don't find him posting on his Facebook about it. Instead, we are left with the imprint of the thoughtlessness of this rich man, acting without compassion, without consideration. The relationship is clear. Nathan is highlighting the central matter of the lamb's bond with the poor man and the rich man's senseless slaughter. Take a moment and pause to recognize the severity of sin. Not only in this passage, but the statement which is intended to be perpetuated throughout time, that sin is deadly. Sin is atrocious. Sin kills. We can imagine the bond of Uriah and Bathsheba that must have been close in their marriage. If the parallel holds true, she was his most treasured relationship. In addition, we can imagine David's sickening behavior. Taking Bathsheba while his own home was full of women that he could have been with if he chose to. Sending Uriah to the front lines to die like a lamb to the slaughter. Nathan's goal in this whole explanation was for David to wrestle with his own sin. A sin of greed, a sin of a lack of compassion, and so on. And this is a goal he intends for us to grapple with as well this morning. We live in a time now where selfish ambition has run amok across our society. Poor, rich, white, brown, young, old, we are berated with a message that we must look out for ourselves. And in our own hearts this morning, we may be reckoning with that truth. Our world tells us that we are our first priority. And some of us have bought into that. Maybe at this station in our life, maybe at other parts. It's in our media, our conversations. And Nathan's message should instantly convict us. As we read, if we're paying attention to this story and we're thinking to ourselves that we are Uriah, we're missing the point. Because we are David. Convict us for the time we were unfair to our neighbors, or we cheated on our taxes, or we used money on ourselves that God had intended for us to use for others, or wasted our time on laziness. You don't need six figures this morning to be greedy, to be wasteful, to be thoughtless with what God's given you. We read David's story and think, shame on him. We think of Nathan's parable and think, what a wicked man. This was David's impression as well, at least in regard to the rich man. When I was in third grade, my teacher was working on her master's of education. And part of her responsibility as she prepared to finish that degree was videotaping the class. And so she had to videotape her teaching as well as the class. And she used that opportunity also as a means of correction for the class. Uh, So in her video, it wasn't only her teaching, but it was also students uh, who were in the video. And and she told us uh, one day after her videotaping that we were being disruptive. And she said, we need to punish the students in our class who are being disorderly. Well, being the astute student that I was, I certainly agreed. I thought, well, whoever has disrupted our education needs to be held to the highest account. And they need to go to the principal's office. The principal's office. So our teacher pulled up the video, and lo and behold, who do you think was being disruptive? It was me. You see, I had done something I shouldn't have done, and when I recognized it, I was not so keen on the consequences 
but I was looking for mercy. And I would tell the teacher that that day, that we should give that person a break, which ultimately resulted in me needing a break. David would soon find this to be true as well. He would be given a choice as to how to respond to the confrontation of his conduct before the Lord in this story. The unrighteous conduct of the rich man certainly wasn't lost on David. The scripture tells us in various versions that he was burning, greatly kindled with anger, furious. It's particularly interesting that David mentions the Lord as he is about to render judgment. See, the Lord is not gone from David even in his sin. In his mind, his thoughts in some small way come back to God. Unlike kings we may encounter elsewhere in the Old Testament, God is still on David's mind, sparking a flash of redemption. But as for his verdict, he renders death and renders restitution as fit for the misgivings of this rich man because the rich man did not have pity. David understood the godless action of this rich man, and he also understood that the just consequence of sin is always death. Always death. No matter the severity of the sin, no matter what we think about the sin, the just consequence of disobedience to a God who gives us a perfect life before we mess it up with our choices is sin. I mean, is death and sin. David refers to such action in Hebrew as being, quote, a son of death or literally one who deserves to die. David is clearly missing the point that he himself is speaking about himself like I was that day when I said sin the person to the principal's office. One theologian says at this point in the story, we wait for Nathan to set the trap. You are the man, Nathan says. It's in 7 and 8 that Nathan emphasizes the God, the bond of God and David. This God-ordained bond that God set out when he called David into kingship and into relationship. God has shown to David generosity. He's shown to David grace. And the statement is open this way. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There seems to be a twofold purpose here. Number one, it is a personal statement. Nathan is reminding David that these are God's words, not his words. This morning, as you read this text and you find conviction and questions, examine the word and examine your heart. No, God is speaking to you today. Second, He refers to God as the God of Israel. And this sounds like a pooling of rank. Because David may be the king of Israel, but God is the God of David. You may be the head of your household, but God is the God of you. You may be in charge of employees, but God is your God. And He's their God too. God is the God who's in charge of you through the conduct and leadership of your children. God is the God of you in your daily engagements in this life. And for David, while he may have had authority over this kingdom, God was in charge. While you may think you call the shots in your life, God is the God of you and me as well. The judgment God will render is the ultimate authority. And we see a beautiful judgment, not only of conviction, but of mercy. Nathan's words are an oracle, a statement that is directly from God. God is reminding David that he would be in no position without God's sovereign leadership, and God had even more to offer him if he would ask for it, instead of just go and take it. Essentially, from childhood to the point of Nathan's address in the Scripture, David is being reminded that God has been leading him every step of the way. 
pulling him out of the fields, as you recall in his story, and placing him in the palace. And so is true with us. Even in our disobedience this morning, God's contrasting himself against David, and yet we'll find in this story that redemption comes. And so too with us. We are being called and beckoned this morning to recognize and be convicted of our own sin in our life, irrespective of how devastating we think it is or isn't. Because in our conviction, we find the freedom of redemption through Jesus Christ. But without recognizing that, and by putting aside our responsibility for what we've done, we will never find the redemption that we look for. The Lord, who David references when rendering judgment in his account with Nathan, is not evident in David's own behavior. And even before God's verdict is stated through Nathan, the Lord has drawn a clear line. And so this is true with us. You see, God is sovereign. God is fully in control, always watching us like the sparrow. Yet like David, we get caught up in our own schemes, attempting to make our lives better, as if we have enough knowledge about the future to determine our own path. And sometimes the consequences are great. Some of us this morning have lived through the consequences of our own sin. Some have broken up families. We've trampled on other people's futures, broken hearts. But even in that, like David, God has not abandoned us. He's with us. In our conviction, God is calling us to repentance, to recognize our sin, to turn from it, and to come to Him. Today, He's calling on you to finally realize that all the material goods in this world, all the relationships you have, sinful and not, will never fulfill you. But only He will. And while you may have left Him, He will never stop chasing after you in this life. God poses a question to David in verse 9 asking him why he despised the word of the Lord. The personal nature of it being evil in God's gaze further advances the personal nature of David's sin. Our sin, no matter how small we think it is, is never an accident. We willfully walk right into evil and willfully do it. And again, we will never be free from the grip of sin until we understand that every time we disobey God, it is totally wrong. Every time we disobey God, it is equal in severity to every other sin. Every time. And I think that's where we get caught up sometimes. I know I do. I look out at the world, I watch the news, I see bombings and murders, and I think, well, the lie I told yesterday is nothing like that. The gossip I shared in Sunday school this morning, anybody here? Nothing like that, right? But if we don't recognize the severity of our own sin in those ways that we think are small, but God certainly doesn't, if we never understand that we are worthy of death as a result of our sin, then we're never going to find the fulfillment and freedom that God willfully extends to us in the repentance and redemption that we find through Jesus. In David's case, David murdered, coveted, and committed adultery. God's chosen man has rejected the very God who has chosen him and is still choosing him. He's still choosing you to follow him. In chapter 11, we see David believes his affair with Bathsheba is concluded. If you go back in that chapter, we find David has this affair, he has the child, he marries, and he thinks everything's wrapped up and it's fine. But in chapter 14, it says that this is still evil in the sight of the Lord even at this time. God has not been fooled by David's actions against Uriah. 
God's not been fooled by David bringing Bathsheba into the household. And he isn't fooled by our sin either. So often we cover our choices with a mask of morality. We put our face out to the world that says, I'm a good person. We get pats on the back and in old Candler Town, we're told we're good men and good women. Yet in the back rooms of our home and in the darkness of our hearts, we know that the only one we're fooling is ourselves. The only thing keeping us from the life we really want, the one we try to manufacture through trinkets and through people, is found exclusively and wholly and without question in Jesus Christ, period. For the person in this room who doesn't know Christ as Savior today, to the one who's known Him the longest, that truth remains forever. Verse 10 and 11 speak to an idea that evil will come from David's own house and the sword shall not depart from his household. This matter of the sword corresponds directly with the reality of Uriah's death, because he would too uh, die by a sword, according to what our Scripture tells us, and according to David's hand, by what God would say. Therefore, justice indicates that David is also deserving of a sword, which God designates as his retribution. As for evil within David's house... Time will show that this will come to pass in his life and family. David's child will die. Rape will occur in his household. Murder for revenge. His son will rebel and try to take over his kingdom, and he, his son is ultimately killed. God also informs David that his wives will be given to his neighbor in the public eye in verse 12. This would ultimately come to pass with his son Absalom having intimacy with David's wives on the palace roof. This would be the follow-through of two things. First, it was an extremely shameful moment of evil that has been raised up in this household designed to overtake David. But we find in God's redemption it doesn't overtake him, although it may overtake his earthly future from this point. In addition, it was a direct retribution for David's own adultery. In chapter 12, David had only a brief understanding of what was yet to come. And this morning, if you hear anything today, hear this. Our sin is serious every time. And we may not understand the outcome, but we should never underestimate how the consequences of sin can devastate our life, even if we have been forgiven. And hear me clearly, forgiveness and consequences are two different things. And sometimes we have to deal with the consequences of our sin, even though our God is merciful in the end. Our God is a gracious judge who will forgive us. But He will correct us as well. There's something to the meekness with which David has been reduced by verse 13. David could have rejected Nathan's prophecy, or he could have had Nathan killed because, after all, he was still the king. Instead, he confesses he has sinned. What a beautiful moment in this story where he recognizes what he's done and he comes to his father like a child who's disobeyed, asking for mercy, forgiveness, and redemption. In addition, he confesses God's lordship over his life. Christians, listen to that note this morning. Speaking God's title in this confession, 
Although his actions were atrocious, he is still the same man God has called to the throne, and you are still the same man, and you are still the same woman that God called at 7, at 10, at 6, at 20, at 45, at 80, however old you were when you came into a relationship with God. You're still the same man and woman that God has called and is calling back to him, irrespective of what your life has looked like since you made that decision. Christian, your faithlessness will never diminish God's faithfulness to you. One pastor puts it this way. The narrative is about the high price of receiving life when we are seduced by our imagined moral and ethical independence, which we don't actually have. In verse 14, the death of a blameless child seems harsh. But according to God's standards, so was the death of Uriah. In addition, David would have to perpetually live with his failure and his poor choices. He would have to forever face the guilt of what his sin had wrought in his own life and in the lives around him. With those final statements, Nathan's speech to David was over. Just as quickly as he had pointed out David's failures, so would David be forgiven just that quickly and face judgment as well. There was no further response from David and there didn't need to be. As he dealt with his guilt and his failure, he understood that he was still God's chosen man. This passage centralizes on the cost of sin and the great, great wealth that comes with grace. When we violate the plan of God, we break His heart every time, no matter how severe we think it is. This is particularly true when our bond is close with God, as was David's bond. In failing a just God, justice is done, must be done. David deserved death, as he himself stated for the rich man, of Nathan's parable. And if God had killed David, that would have been right and appropriate. However, David was spared, but his future was not. He would face much calamity for what he, would, what he had done in the years ahead. But the ultimate price was not paid by him. Because in time, as we continue on in our story through the gospel, we'll find that Jesus will come. And Jesus' death is payment even for David's sin, and his payment this morning for my sin, and his payment this morning for your sin. God's grace was abundant for David, and so we must know that God's grace this morning is abundant for us as well. We see that every day as we stand between a crossroads of two choices, good and evil, right and wrong, life and death. And understand again that sin leads to death, however that death may come. It might be the death of trust. It might be the death of relationships. It can lead to the death of hopes and dreams. Sin can lead to the death of our finances and our physical health. Whatever the results form, the wages of sin is always death. However, today we have a great hope. Because as God offered grace to David, so he offers it to us as well. God sent his son Jesus Christ to pay the ultimate price for our sin. It is through his death and resurrection that we are able to witness this grace in action, just as real, just as vivid, just as powerful, and just as redeeming as it was some 2,000 years ago. Our sin can still bring death in this life. However, for those of us who know Jesus Christ, death is not the end for us. The love of God in Christ is beyond our comprehension, but experiencing it still requires a choice. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song, and a choice will be put before you. 
a choice to come know Christ as Savior, or if you know Him today, a choice to die to your sin yet again and recommit your faith to Him, a choice to lay down some burden on your heart that you have that you've walked in here with, a choice to finally recognize that that thing you're doing that nobody knows about, that's hidden and nobody will ever find out about, is breaking God's heart and it's time to come home and change the way you're living through the power of the Holy Spirit in you. You see, in our account with clarity, the choices are put before us. To come to Christ or do nothing. I encourage you to make a definitive decision this morning as to who you are and who you will follow. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this challenging account. God, I know as I prepared this message, I am, I am David. I have sidestepped my sin and thought that the cost was not as great as it actually was when we look at Jesus' death for us and our sin. And Lord, as we've listened to this word and our hearts are stirred, help us not to put attention just to our neighbor or to our spouse, but to look in our own hearts today and see that our God is merciful, but the warning is clear. Turn back now and come to Christ. Amen. Stand as we sing. Please take some time today, particularly to be in prayer for uh, the various needs of our church family. I, as I mentioned, there's quite a few things that have been brought to my attention today and to others' attentions. And so please be in prayer today for our various health needs and other things that are going on in our church this morning. Rick, can you close us in prayer, please?